none of the jazz standards are written by women. Um, most of the band leaders aren't. So you have patrons, um, presenters, you know, radio uh, journalists, all, all people that are coming now more to a consciousness around, around this issue. And I, I see it changing, so I'm extremely hopeful. But in 10 years, I would really like to not have to have an institute like this. Welcome to Arts Engines. I am your host, Aaron Dworkin. And with us today as our guest, we have Terry Lynn Carrington, who serves as founder and the artistic director of the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. She's also artistic director for Berkeley Summer Jazz Workshop, co-curator for BAMS Fest, co-artistic director of the Carr Center here in Detroit, Michigan. And as if that was not enough, three-time Grammy award-winning drummer, producer, educator, and activist, Terry Lynn. It is so wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. So nice to be here. Nice to talk with you. And actually, I'm now the artistic director for the Carr Center, um, opposed to co-artistic director. I've, I've graduated. Hey, awesome. Awesome. Well, one of our great uh, Detroit treasures uh, as well. So, and I'm so excited for this show, which has been co-curated by Berklee College of Music and the Boston Conservatory. Um, who really help us think through kind of how should we look at these topics and of course the opportunity to be able to invite you to come on uh, as our guest. So what I thought I would do, and you know, I always tell our viewers, you know, check out everybody's bios. We like to kind of not go through a bio interview type of thing, but really delve into the issues. Um, and so you of course lead the Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice. So I thought I would just start right off and for all of our viewers, you know, who might be wondering, what is an Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice? Well, seeing as we're the first of our kind, I guess I'm still trying to define that myself. Uh, but basically, um, it's just a, a way to bring attention to this really, really big problem of uh, gender parity in jazz. Um, and also just in the music industry in general, but my focus is jazz because that's my background and that's basically, um, you know, the, where I make my living um, and what I teach. But um, it started off um, with just meeting with some students, some women students that uh, told me some stories that were just kind of shocking because I didn't grow up with the same kind of experience they did. And just from having this meeting, it really opened my eyes to seeing that these issues really needed to be addressed at our institution, but just in the field in general. And just because um, I had a very exceptional career and childhood and was protected and kind of ushered into uh, the jazz world by my father and other greats, um, I, I had a responsibility now to really look at the issue from without of my own perspective and try to do my best to um, you know, bring others along with me and to point out to my colleagues and um, comrades in the jazz world and mentors even, um, that something is terribly wrong. And that's basically how we started it, just at the school, but what's happened is a lot of other people um, have asked us to partner and do different programming and 
um, you know, a, a lot of other people are now really interested in this topic, which I'm very happy about because now I see more light at the end of the tunnel. That's awesome. And so, and I want to kind of get a little into your background, more of your background in just a minute, but in terms of the Institute itself, so how does that now manifest that work? So in other words, there are clearly these issues relating to, to gender and jazz. Um, what are the ways in which you address it? Are there different kind of focus areas or pockets or ways that you tackle it? Well, the first way is just uh, providing a, 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 a safe, nurturing place for um, not just young women, but um, people from the entire gender spectrum uh, to be able to learn the music. That's like the first thing, um, because there, there are transgender students that I didn't know were at Berkeley um, that have found us. Um, and a lot of young women that always feel this barrier, you know, even in a classroom or in an ensemble, uh, they don't they don't feel as supported and nurtured. So even the young men that are in our program, because it's not just for women, um, but since these young men have gravitated to this program, the young women feel um, supported by them and not uh, judged and um, and not you know like like um, like they're be being given opportunity just because they are women. Uh, they feel like you know they really have uh, an environment to buckle down and try to learn this music, which is hard enough in itself. Um, and we also have a lot of guest artists to come in and give them, um, you know, lessons and, uh, and you know, lead, lead ensembles, do uh, composition work, private lessons. Um, they come for, you know, a few days at a time. So I think that within a semester, we might have six or seven guest artists, which are great opportunities for the students, you know, to, to learn directly from you know, these masterful musicians. Um, and then we do, you know, partnering with other organizations and presenting um, partners within the Boston area, but also outside of the Boston area. So um, we've done stuff in New York and DC, um, Monterey Jazz Festival, we travel Europe. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, basically trying to address the problem from within our institution, but it also addresses it without. Gotcha. And as you look down the road, like, do you see, like, you know, if the Institute's work is successful, um, what would you like to see different in the field, say, 10 years from now, um, that you would have been instrumental in, in helping to bring about? Well, I think, like, one of the biggest problems is that people, it seems to me that people just say that they didn't realize that uh, this problem existed. And um, which is, it seems odd, but I can relate to it because I didn't as well for so long and I'm in it. Um, so I think that just this awareness of, oh right, there is something wrong. None of the music that we play, none of the composers are women, none of the jazz standards are written by women. Um, most of the band leaders aren't. So you have patrons, um, presenters, you know, radio uh, journalists, all, all people that are coming now more to a consciousness around, around this issue. And I, I see it changing, so I'm extremely hopeful. But in 10 years, I would really like to not have to have an institute like this. You know, I would, I would love for it to be a, a natural, um, just a natural thing that more women are playing. It's not gonna happen overnight, um, but 
in 10 years time, it, it would be great to see, uh, you know, more gender equality in, in our field. And not just in the performers, but uh, also, you know, with, with education, with teachers, uh, uh, you know, with journalists, with scholars. Um, so that's kind of, you know, my, my goal in 10 years is to, is to have helped contribute to uh, that kind of equality. I mean, I also always say, if you go to a museum and uh, you see nothing but works of male artists, you would think something's wrong. <laughs> and for so many years, nobody thought anything was wrong, you know, with what's right. happening in jazz. All right. So you touched a little on, you know, you've had this extraordinary opportunity and really was able to come into jazz early and, and have had just such an extraordinary um, career. Um, what was that like kind of coming up? Uh, when, when did you kind of realize this is my thing, right? This isn't just, you know, uh, my family. This isn't just, this is, this is now for me. This is mine that I really want to take on. Was there a moment that that kind of happened for you? No, that, I always felt ownership in the music. And that's the first thing that I try to, um, you know, relate to our students. Um, that this is your music. You know, you have the right to be here. You have the right to play it. And um, I, it was hard for me at first to relate to people that didn't feel that way because I've always felt that. Um, but just to, you know, kind of stand in your own authenticity, uh, you know, in, inside of the music is not easy for a lot of people. And also, I, I think so many of uh, so, so much of what we come to expect from a jazz musician um, is steeped in masculinity. So uh, we, we have not fully accepted the feminine aesthetic, you know, in, in the music. So um, I think that everybody has to start to listen differently. Um, and even myself, I've, I've even, I've had to start to listen differently and, and uh, also look at um, my own playing because I've always compared it to every other guy out there. So I had to be just as strong and just as, um, you know, in touch with, you know, my own masculinity to be competitive with them. And so it, now it's like a whole different way of thinking. You know, it's, it's a transformational, really. That's awesome. So we've talked about gender, um, and, but I also would, you know, there are definitely people who feel that there are different racial issues that arise in jazz. And just wondering if you have thoughts about kind of the sense of race in jazz as it relates not just to performers, but audiences. Sure. Well, as far as um, performers go, um, jazz education has gotten bigger and bigger <laughs> as the years go on. And um, that's, an, that's an important part of developing young musicians. Um, but I think before people were comfortable learning jazz in a school environment, um, you know, there was just the regular way of, <laughs> of, of learning and, you know, hard, the way of hard knocks, you know. <laughs> And having to just go out there and, and be mentored and get beaten up, you know, by these great musicians and, and, you know, you find out if you can sink or swim, you know, that's kind of the way that it used to happen. Uh, when education came along, uh, I think that so many of the, the young uh, black students uh, who didn't have the same resources, 
uh, couldn't study uh, in the same way. They, they didn't have uh, you know, the same opportunities with programming in, in high school or junior high school. So what I found is uh, jazz education has produced a lot more white students uh, or white graduates. Um, and that's, I, I feel you know, a bit of a problem and with, with our institute and also with the summer program that I do, which is for high school students, I've really been trying to make sure that I can look at potential. Um, sometimes, you know, not just base everything off of merit. And, um, you know, that's interesting and challenging when you're working at a, a, a college that awards scholarships to people based on merit and their ability. So, um, you know, that's one thing that I feel has been a problem uh, with the racial factor in this. As far as the audience, I mean, we've seen this happening with, you know, all the black music art forms, um, you know, the blues, jazz, and even now hip hop. Um, something, when something becomes popular or success, generally it's often, you know, because uh, more white people are, are supporting it, so um, and which is which is fine, but it, you know one of the things that I try to instill in our students is is to really understand the history. You know, even the people that don't like jazz necessarily, or that um, are, are hip hop musicians, or R and B musicians, or gospel musicians, um, to not understand the connection to the blues that we we all have. Um, and to not understand, I look at it all as black music. And um, I think we have to take, you know, a, a different sense of pride and educate ourselves more uh, on the foundational aspect of, of, of all of black music. Um, so, you know, I often talk a lot about that with our students and I, it's nice to see the light bulbs going off and to be able to talk to white students about black music and make them understand the foundation of it as well. Awesome. Is if, if there was kind of one thing that you would want, you know, um, young people, especially uh, many of whom watch the show to to know um, about jazz or to take away from jazz that they might not already think, um, what would that kind of what would that be that you would you know be like, you know what, you, you may not be thinking about jazz like this or it means this. Is there, what would that be? Well, I, I don't think it's something that, um, I think a lot of people think that it's old and aren't really looking at the connections um, that jazz has with contemporary music, modern music. Um, so, and that's been happening for a while, I think since the 80s. I think in the 70s, there was still so much um, you know, life to, um, to what would have what would have been considered modern jazz, but somehow in the '80s everything started um, going back to classic jazz or a certain kind of sound. You know, these record companies that were creating um, young jazz lions, and uh, it kind of directed the sound. And more experimental music uh, was not being supported in the same way. Uh, and I think you know, jazz musicians have always been contemporary, you know, have always blended genres. Um, so I think you have to do a little more work sometimes to, to, to find that and to hear that, to figure out what your jazz is. Um, but it's there. 
And so I kind of have this discussion often sometimes with hip hop people um, that, you know, feel like hip hop is the new black music and, um, and jazz is, uh, you know, old. But um, <laughs> what do you tell them? What do you tell them? <laughs> well, I tell them the same thing I just said, you know, like I have a new band, Social Science, and um, one of the people in the band, the guitarist, you can hear indie rock uh, influence in his playing. Um, the pianist, you can hear um, the influence of classical composers in his writing and his playing. Um, uh, the vocalist is, is from Haiti, and you can hear that influence. Um, there's rap and spoken word on the album. So, you know, there's a, a turntablist in the band. So, um, you know, we definitely have some hip hop and R&B um, influence in there as well. So I think that the fact that this album that I just did actually uh, won a downbeat critics poll of uh, best album of the year and uh, I won best artist of the year. And that was really shocking to me because I kind of look at a lot of the critics as thinking about jazz a little bit, um, you know, more from a traditional standpoint. So to me, it's a turning point because I, I feel that people are really starting to embrace uh, the fact that you know jazz has you know all, has all these legs and arms like an octopus <laughs> and it uh you know it can still be jazz if you have a, a hip-hop beat awesome awesome so you know you mentioned uh which makes me think about you know you you know you obviously you are active in terms of your recording you're performing you're doing all that but you also have to do this administrative piece and I know a lot of times, you know, musicians struggle with how do I balance these things and what's my time being spent and is one pulling me away from the other? Do you find a balance with that? Do you, how do you balance that differential between the administrative things you have to do and just the, you know, the, the pure music? Well, luckily, um, I have an amazing managing director Asia Burrell Wood, who's an ethnomusicologist. Uh, she also teaches a class, Jazz, Gender, and Society, which is a liberal arts class at Berkeley. Um, she's from Detroit. <laughs> yes, of Shout course. Know her well. She's awesome, yeah. <laughs> so uh, she really handles a lot of the uh, admin work. Um, and I'm allowed to, you know, kind of be the big picture thinker which is great uh, for me. I do that part well. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's definitely a little more uh, admin work than before I started the Institute. And I just have to keep a balance between my professional life as a musician, um, my desires as a composer and uh, producer and you know, all the other things that I like to do. Uh, and this Institute, and it's definitely a, a balancing act. And I'm always working so i have to right. force myself to not work and take care of myself in other ways <laughs> so do you unfortunately we're just about out of time but wanted to to kind of ask in terms of that taking care of yourself right because of all of this work you're doing and all of the success you're extremely busy so how do you kind of keep that um that sense of yourself going when the institutes are calling for things when various programs, other musicians, uh, you know, sometimes they only can sometimes feel like people need all of these different things from me uh, as I'm doing things. How do you, how do you find um, you're able to center yourself and keep yourself 
in the midst of all of these obligations and, uh, and work that you're doing? Um, well, I think that I get so much joy from the work that I do that um, I, I, I never feel like it's a burden. And I feel like it keeps me um, on the pulse of what's happening in my field. Um, and I feel like it feeds me uh, more than it takes anything away from me. So um, I'm generally excited about all that I'm doing and have to just, you know, figure out what the priority is, you know, each day. Um, and that's been, I think, the big thing because I've never been the most organized person uh, in the world. I have a lot going on in my head and that's kind of where, you know, it stays. And now I'm realizing, oh my God, I really have to organize this better because so much is happening now that I can't have as much in my head anymore. Um, but that's the, you know, the other good thing about having support of the university, of, of the college. Um, Berkeley is a, is a great um, place to work because they're very supportive of, of what we're doing. And of course, Asia. And I also have an amazing advisory board with Angela Davis and Gina Dent, and Sarah Jasmine Griffin, um, Carrie Mae Weems. So there's a lot of people around me that I can call for help, you know, um, and that's, that's an, very important. Um, but, you know, I, I, right now during this COVID thing, I'm trying to make sure I take a walk, you know, a couple miles, two or three miles every day. Um, just to, you know, clear my head and to just move because so much, there's so much sitting uh, at the computer now. Um, and I try to eat well. I like to cook. So it's cooking a lot of vegan recipes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, just as we go out, what would you say? What's your favorite dish that you like to cook? Ah, okay. Let's see. Well, I'm, I'm, I said I'm cooking a lot of vegan recipes, which I am, but, um, I love to cook sea bass mm. as well, so that's one of my one of my specialties. And I've I've recently um, subscribed to the purple carrot, which sends you all the uh, ingredients to cook various uh, dishes with you know tempeh and tofu, but also just uh, you know vegetable dishes too. So that's been a lot of fun during COVID. All these new recipes. <laughs> nice, awesome, awesome. Well, Terry Lynn Carrington, you truly are one of the great arts engines who is powering human creativity in our field. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.